I really care about being self-sufficient and I had never thought to ask anyone for anything <laughs> way before. And then suddenly here I am with this idea and a vision and I've never done this before, but I'm asking people for their money to build a company. And so that to me was one of the more uncomfortable aspects of this. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Alex Friedman, to our show today. Alex is the CEO and co-founder of Lola, the first lifelong brand for your body. The idea of Lola came about when Alex met her co-founder, Jordana Kier. And they started asking questions around what are tampons made out of? When they were searching on Google and doing all their research, they realized nothing was disclosed online and they couldn't find anything about the chemicals that they might be unknowingly putting in their bodies. At this point, they realized something needs to change. They started the company with complete product transparency and created their first product line of organic tampons. Lola has now expanded well beyond tampons and provides feminine care products that address every reproductive life stage. They're on a mission to reshape the conversation around our reproductive health and set a higher standard for ingredient transparency in our personal care products. The company has raised over 35 million from top tier investors, such as Spark Capital, Box Group, and Serena Williams, to name a few. We'll talk to Alex today about what it's like to raise money pitching tampons to a room full of investors, lessons around what it takes to disrupt an established industry, and what new motherhood looked like when they were scaling a high growth business and so much more. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited. I think the best part of having this podcast is I get to bring brands that I'm personally passionate about. I know I've been telling you I'm an early user of Lola. I love your mission. And I'm really excited for our listeners to learn more about you and your story and the brand as a whole. So super excited that you're here. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm just going to jump right into it. And on the podcast, we always love to start from the beginning. I know you grew up in New York City and you were kind of somewhat entrepreneurial still as a child. You've always had jobs growing up. So I'd love to hear more about your childhood and how you think it's really influenced the woman you are today. Sure. So I did grow up in New York City. I grew up with my parents and my younger sister, Claire, in an apartment on the Upper West Side. I currently live two blocks from there, so I haven't moved far away. Oh, cool. From where I used to live. And yeah, I mean, growing up, I was always encouraged to be entrepreneurial. I think my mom has told me that something that she prided herself on was raising me to be self-sufficient and somebody who could always fend for themselves and rise to the challenge of any occasion. So I was encouraged to have, I went to camp over the summer when I was younger, but then, you know, as I progressed to my teen years, always had a summer job and kind of maintained that practice through high school and college and always liked working and experiencing new things in new industries. Yes. And I think that also translates to your adult life as well. You were, you know, after college, you've mentioned in another interview that despite having amazing jobs, you've always kind of quote unquote played it safe. So I'd love to kind of hear more about your life prior to Lola, because we'll get into that and how you think that experience really led you to the world of entrepreneurship. 
Sure. So out of college, I joined a private equity consulting firm, which is about as safe as you can get. I knew I wanted to be in business and I wanted to get exposed to a lot of different industries quickly. And I heard there was this type of consulting where you would work on three week projects and you could cycle through, you know, like a hundred different industries right away and thought, okay, that's exactly what I want. Went and did that for three years. From there, I was really interested in the private equity aspect of the consulting. And so I joined a venture fund of funds where I was writing checks into venture funds who were backing entrepreneurs. And that was really my first exposure to the startup world. And it was really exciting. I mean, I, I got to manage investments and see portfolios of hundreds and thousands of companies and meet founding teams. And it was incredible. Unfortunately, it was you know 2008, 2009, the economy was stalling you know, more startups were getting shut down than started at the time. And so I figured great time to go to business school. So I was in business school 2009 to 11, thinking a lot about early stage businesses, but again, not inspired by the landscape. Didn't occur to me to start a company myself. So I was looking at what was out there and decided instead to just join a management consulting firm. So out of business school, went to BCG and was there for a couple of years as a consultant. Again, cycling through a ton of different industries, consumer products, healthcare, financial services. It was there where I really got the itch to be doing something smaller and create. And again, didn't occur to me then to start my own business. I joined someone else's kind of mid to late stage startup in ad tech and did that for a few years. And it was while I was there that I actually met Jordana, my co-founder and business partner today and started Lola. Yeah. Well, there's so much to unpack there. And I, I love your experience in consulting because like you said, I do think it exposes you to so many different industries. I think it's a great precursor to becoming an entrepreneur because you get to really dig into what, how a company operates and recommendations for them. So I always think having corporate experience always benefits you in some way or another in the world of entrepreneurship. So it seems like you're working in a more later stage business. You have the itch to jump into the world of entrepreneurship. You don't have an idea. You're not sure what that looks like. So tell me, how did you meet Jordana and how did the sparks fly between you two? Because it seems like it was definitely a match made in heaven. So we were introduced by our husbands who knew each other through other business activities. And Jordana had the early idea for Lola and was thinking about how to you know, potentially get a company off the ground in the period space. And we met, we're connected, like had a beer, got to know each other. And she asked me, hey, have you ever wondered what's in a tampon? And I hadn't. And I had no idea. I thought it must be cotton, right? It looks like cotton. And we had this great conversation where she let, let me know, actually, she wasn't able to figure out what was in the tampons we had both been using because ingredients disclosure wasn't required in the industry. And it was a mind-blowing conversation. And I remember I went home, Googled my face off, couldn't figure out what was in any of the mainstream brands. And that was it. We decided to start working on it together. And it started as a passion project for me. And eventually, kind of after pressure testing the idea, I realized it really could be a business. Yeah. And I think it's amazing because I still think a lot of women don't know what's in their tampons. And it's crazy that I believe it's still not exposed, right? What the ingredients are, which is mind boggling to me. So you guys are talking about this. You think you see an opportunity. There's no businesses that are creating organic tampons at the time. You said that you were pressure testing the idea, right? It was a passion project. You still had your full-time job. So what made you feel comfortable to really go all in? Like, What did you and Jordana do in those early, early stages? 
It's so fun to reminisce about this. So basically we, so we did some consumer research. We did surveys of people we didn't know. We did surveys of people we did know. We held 10 or 15 focus groups to talk about people's periods and the products they used and whether they knew or cared what was in them. We built a financial model to think through how we could actually get a business off the ground. We talked to suppliers all over the world to understand how we could produce products. And we thought a bit about the digital experience and also the branding. And we essentially worked on all of that together. We divided up the work streams. A lot of the work we did together was at night because I was you know, fully employed at this time. And she had just come out of business school and was off for the summer. And yeah, we just pressure tested every element of it. Did we like working together? Did we believe it was a big enough problem to solve by starting a company? And what would it take? What were, what were the resources? And could we, could we gather those resources together? Yeah. And I think that's a great step because I think sometimes, you know, at least for in my journey, it could seem like a big risk to leave the corporate world and go all into an idea. But what made me feel comfortable, and it seems like your journey as well, is you're going through all the numbers, you're talking to more women, you're building that confidence that, okay, something is there. So it does make transition a little bit easier to quit your past career and go all in. And one thing that you mentioned, you guys were building out the financial model. You reached out to the suppliers to really understand a proper budget. And for you, it was important, and I believe Jordana as well, to raise money before you quit your job and go all in. So in the early days, you felt really uncomfortable asking people for money. And a lot of people feel that way. I'm sure you're a pro now, but take us back to that time when you validated the idea and now it was time to raise money from your network to to really go forward and do it. So, you know, as you said, the whole process was foreign to me for a lot of reasons. And so essentially what I was trying to do is de-risk every aspect that I possibly could. We got to the point where it was clear that in our focus groups and every, you know, every woman we talked to, they didn't know what was in this product and they wanted to, and they wanted to change brands once they knew they didn't know. And Jordana and I worked so well together. And so from there, we had this financial model. It said we needed a certain amount of money. We talked to, you know, a handful of other folks we knew who had started companies and they encouraged us to double that number. So we did. I hear that a lot. Everyone on the podcast, a lot of people say that. So it's true. You've gone through it, but thank yeah. God. Thank God. And then we essentially made a, an Excel spreadsheet of everyone we thought we could go to. And, you know, it was a list of people we knew from business school, people we knew had made angel investments before, seed investors we'd heard of. I think the list was 20 people. And every time we outreached to someone and met with them, we'd ask, hey, do you know one or two more people we should be talking to? So that eventually the list was 50 people and we held about 50 meetings. And the whole thing was really educational and fun, but also extremely awkward because as I mentioned, you know, in the first, the first question you asked me, I really care about being self-sufficient and had never thought to ask anyone for anything that way before. And then suddenly here I am with this idea and a vision, and I've never done this before, but I'm asking people for their money to build a company. And so that to me was one of the more uncomfortable aspects of this. Gosh, that I'm just smiling because that resonates so much with me. I feel like we have a very similar upbringing. My parents always said, be financially independent. And that transition, leaving that money, which clearly I didn't know I had such big attachment to starting a business, just always, I haven't fundraised, but just thinking about it, it's definitely outside my comfort zone for sure, for those same reasons. So you mentioned you were meeting these investors and clearly, you know, 
unfortunately, a lot of people still don't even understand. A lot of men don't understand how a tampon works. I know the world has changed a little bit now and it's a little bit easier to communicate these types of products. But when you were just starting out, you spent a lot of time, like you said, on education. So tell me more about how you structured your pitches, because I think it's very unique versus a lot of other entrepreneurs who walk in and speak to investors. Great question. It was very different, I think. Obviously, I haven't been in those pitches, but everything I read online before going into our pitches told me that I should go in, frame up the size of the market and the company that we wanted to build, and then talk about why we were the people to do it. And it was kind of a simple formula. But we got into these meetings and just eyes glazed right away. Nobody had any idea what we were talking about. 95% of the people we were meeting with were men. And they didn't have any personal understanding of or empathy for a woman's reproductive experience and had never seen or touched a tampon. And so here we were responsible for educating before we could actually get into the conversation about the market size and what we were building and why. And it was really fun. And so we created this periods 101 slide, which is how we kicked off meetings at the very beginning. And we even would bring tampons and dunk them in water at meetings to show how they absorbed fluid and expanded. And you know, the most interesting part of this was we developed such warm friendships and relationships at the beginning of these conversations that we had a great time fundraising. I think, you know, once we realized there was a big education gap and we could lean into it and that would actually be a positive for the process, it turned out to be fun and productive. I love the way you look at that because, you know, somebody could think this is really difficult. No one understands what I'm saying and trying to build, but you guys had fun and educated them and you built deeper relationships, which clearly has worked out because you guys have successfully fundraised a few times after. So I just love your mentality. And I think that approach in any aspect of building a business is really important. So I just wanted to highlight that. So, you know, you're meeting different investors. I know you mentioned another tough or interesting transition for you was really sharing your idea to friends and family. And I know your boyfriend, now husband was very supportive. Your parents were supportive. Your sister though, she gave you a little bit of tough love, which I'd love to hear more about because I think there's a lot of people listening who might feel that way or, or be in a similar situation with family members when they are sharing this crazy idea before they officially launch. I mean, I think so at the very beginning, it was really random, I think, like when I was telling my family what I was planning to do, I had, you know, gone to Dartmouth and worked in consulting and done really traditional things for a decade. And then here I am one day sitting them down and telling them, I think there's a really big opportunity to start a brand in organic tampons and build something for women where they know what's in their products. Nobody, they're like, where did Alex go? What's going on here? <laughs> I was really passionate about the idea and I had all this training and, you know, how to do every element of building a company in all these different places. And so it, it made sense. I think I did receive challenges from people just asking, is the market really there? Or if this is a really great idea, why hasn't somebody already done it? Or what do you know about starting a company? And so, you know, people ask me those questions. I think at the end of the day, they were actually really helpful to kind of sort through for myself and understand all the different angles that people who really cared about me would engage. I would say the, the harshest feedback, actually, I remember Jordana telling me this story, we would divide and conquer in the very early days, some of the pitches. And one investor said to her, you sound like a entrepreneur. You've never actually started a company before, but you want to, but why would we give you money? And I remember those kind of things were really like 
been damaging comments. I mean, now we can laugh about them, but at that point, you know, that was really striking a chord with us because we never had started a company. And did you ever second guess doing it? How did you overcome those tough conversations or hearing feedback like that, which sounds just crazy then, but I know how emotional it could be at that time. Yeah, I think I've just kind of learned along the way what what feedback to listen to and what feedback not to listen to. It's funny, like I grew up sharing a room with my sister and there was so much noise and commotion. I can have tunnel vision and concentrate when I need to and I can listen to what I need to hear when I when I want to. I love that. I think it was a little bit like that where some people who we believed in or trusted would give us feedback or tell us we were doing something wrong or should be thinking differently or bigger. I remember all of those conversations and I, you know, I still reference them when I'm thinking about new ideas for Lola and I go back to those conversations and wonder what would this person tell me? Yeah. And I know you've mentioned you're a mentor junkie, just how mentorship and connecting with others has really influenced your life and navigating the world of entrepreneurship. I'd love for you to talk about that more because I think not enough women or even men who are listening do that. For me, feedback is everything. You know, you can't see what you're like in every meeting or how effective or ineffective you are unless you ask people for feedback. And I also think that mentors can give you great feedback or at least tell you what you might not know about the next step. And so throughout my whole life, I've always, even in school, looked to the older kids or, you know, when building a company, looked to those who built companies five years before me just to try to understand from them what I'm up against and where where am I going to trip and stumble. And so something that Jordana and I did very early was when we raised our, our friends and family around in 2014-15 was that we wanted to get a lot of mentors on our cap table. And so we raised from 15 or 20 people, probably half of them had founded and currently ran their own companies. And getting them to write small checks and be our investors meant that they were tied to the product of what we were doing and they were available to us. And they have been incredibly helpful along the way. They're people who, who answer the phone when we call and give us a lot of great advice and give us honest feedback. And if, if we have a question about how to do something, we can call anytime. That's really important just to have a good Rolodex of people, whether they're in your whether they're investors or people you just organically reach out to to ask 10 minutes of their time. I always tell people, you'd be surprised how generous people are and you're not expected to know everything, especially when building a business, right? You're always going to have questions. And it's so important to talk to as many people as you can just to get their perspective and feedback. So you, you finally raise this money. And my next question is, you know, what were the early stages of creating brand awareness? How did you approach it? Because I know there's so much education involved in terms of creating a clean tampon for women. Yeah. So at the very beginning, we wanted to build the company in a little bit of a grassroots way where we were starting an organic conversation where people were comfortable talking about it in their circles. And so we used the 10 or 15 focus groups as the basis for spreading the word about the need, the problem we were solving in the company. And there had been something like 200 participants in the focus groups and you know, each of them had 100 or 200 friends. And so we asked them to help spread the word and they did. That was eye-opening to us. It was one of the most surprising things about launching the business was that we had 200 women who felt comfortable openly advocating for a period company on Facebook. 
And we had gone into this whole thing thinking this is the most stigmatized area. No one's talking about this. No one will talk about it. So many people told us you can't get this off the ground because the whole thing is reliant on building broad-based conversation and a brand. And, you know, day one of launch, it was like hundreds of people we knew, like just openly talking about this and telling their communities. So that was really the most important thing that happened. The other thing that we really focused on was press and influencers. We knew, you know, we were selling medical devices. We needed to be credible and we wanted the right publications and writers to research what we were doing and offer their opinions on it. And we wanted influencers also to do the same. And so kind of building that way, what felt like a really authentic way of launching the brand. Yeah. And it's interesting because we've heard this with a few other entrepreneurs on the podcast in terms of that grassroots approach of really having a close community of women and men that you engage with, with your product. And you're just so surprised how they do spread the word, right? Like you were saying 200 women. And then once you launch their ability to really connect and share with their community, I mean, did they have any incentives to do that? Were they part of this community of Lola VIP in any way, or what was their motivation to share outside of just the education maybe? It was mostly education. There was no incentive. Essentially, what we what we had created was a movement. We had lots of people who were angry that they didn't know what was in these products and were thankful that someone was trying to deal with it and wanted to spread the word. And the whole thing was a passion project for them too. Yeah, I love it. And that's how I heard about Lola. I was just complaining about the other products that I eat or skincare that I put on my face. And my friend mentioned you and I was like, I've never thought about tampons and you are putting that in your body every month for multiple days. It's mind blowing to think about. So yeah. And the other thing that is really interesting about it is that it's not like we created the movement for demanding ingredients, transparency, or knowing what's in a product. This is actually probably the last industry on earth where it was talked about, right? So like all these 200 women and all their friends and friends, friends had already made the right decisions in food and skincare, and they were working out. And, you know, we weren't like the first brand that somebody thought to change their habits. And we're, we're talking to a group of educated people who have changed their habits and all these other industries. And this is like the last thing they haven't thought of. So at the end of the day, it wasn't so hard for them to find the words to talk about it because it was the last piece of their lives that they hadn't thought about this way. Yeah, no, you're right. It's it's amazing to hear. So thinking about the company, you guys have gained so much traction from word of mouth starting out. As a small and nimble team, you know, I'm sure there wasn't a ton of resources and help. Was it tough to meet that demand? Did you have a wait list? I know a lot of growth sounds amazing on paper, but it's a lot going on behind the scenes, especially with a small team starting out. It was a lot. I would say in order to start a business in this space, we had to buy a lot of inventory. Tampons are very small and light. So we were well stocked from the very beginning. The company took off right away, but it was a relatively simple operation and we had enough supplies on hand to meet the demand. So from that perspective, we were very well equipped. You clearly have disrupted an industry. Do you have any advice on any women today who are looking to do something innovative in an industry that they're passionate about? Sure. So I guess one thing that I always come back to is that when we founded Lola, we didn't just want to start a business. We wanted to solve a very real problem in a category that was antiquated. And it wasn't about just starting a company. You know, I didn't want to start a company. (laughs) 
but we wanted to create modern solutions for our reproductive journeys as customers of the products. And it's important for founders to be thinking about the problem that they're trying to solve rather than the company that they want to form and focus on solving that problem. Because if it's a real problem and you solve it correctly, you will have success. The second thing is the mentorship topic that you mentioned before. I think it's really important to have a network of mentors and people you can trust, both for honest feedback, but also to partner with you when you don't know how to build a certain aspect of the business. We not only brought on mentors as investors, but we brought on dozens of advisors over the years, like, hey, we have this, we have a question about supply chain. We should bring on a a head of supply chain as an advisor to engage with us on a quarterly basis. Hey, now we have a question about how to modify this aspect of performance marketing. Maybe we need to bring on a senior level performance marketer from a, a relevant brand as an advisor. And so that has also been high impact. And then The third thing I would just say is take everything one step at a time, getting a company off the ground. Like it doesn't just happen overnight and there are a lot of details and you kind of just have to make a long list of all the priorities and be okay that some things happen later and take it one day at a time. And sometimes it takes longer than you think and it takes more resources than you think. But if you just focus on the small steps rather than the gravity of the big thing you want to achieve, you'll maintain your sanity. Amen. I love that. I think those are three really great tips. And just talking about the last one, I mean, anytime I have a second where I feel slightly overwhelmed, I just zoom back in and I go, just think about the next step. I think that is like the magic sauce in entrepreneurship because the lists are always long. And I'm sure obviously Lola is much bigger right now, but that never changes. The tasks and the resources just get to another level. So I love, I love that because that is the only way you can keep your sanity. So on the face of it, it looks like Lola has created so much success, especially starting out. Are there any stories, you know, whether it's a specific hurdle or a challenge that the business faced? I mean, I could go on and on and on. There are so many challenges to building a company. One is just thinking back to the fundraising topic. We, When we started the business, we were very focused on this one category, tampons, and kind of standing up a brand in that category. But in the first year, what we learned was that the same stigma that drives lack of ingredients, transparency, and lack of community and conversation in periods is the same in every reproductive category. So if it's period, sex, fertility, pregnancy, postpartum, perimenopause, menopause, like literally every moment in a woman's life, she's recreating the wheel and doesn't know where to turn and is surprised by what her body is doing. From there, it became clear that we wanted to build a platform to address all of those needs. And suddenly the fundraising pitch and challenge became much greater because it wasn't just about periods 101 and dunking tampons in water. It was about getting male investors to be empathetic to a woman's reproductive life experience with so much passion that they wanted to give us money. (laughs) And so, yeah, that was like a totally different fundraising challenge. And we've been very successful in, in doing that and demonstrating the need. That definitely is one challenge that we faced as, you know, as the brand and business evolved, how to attract investors and capital. Another challenge was that we decided to switch from being a direct-to-consumer only brand to an omni-channel one right as COVID started. So Mm. 
to us, D2C is, is a very special channel where we started and where we established one-on-one connections with our consumers. And because of all of the evangelism and support and inbound questions and inbound feedback, we know what to anticipate and what to launch for our next product categories. However, direct-to-consumer is only one element of the business. We always knew we wanted to serve a much greater audience and we wanted to be in retail, on shelf, accessible to everyone. So we decided to do that and we did a you know a national rollout at Walmart in April 2020. And you know, that was an interesting moment for us to become a brand that's old and brick and mortar because it was a moment where we couldn't physically be anywhere we were selling. And you know, kind of managing through all the elements of a physical rollout as a direct-to-consumer first brand in a remote environment was a challenge like no other. I'm sure. And, you know, in terms of the retail rollout, did you lean into like, how did you even know how to handle that? I mean, I guess you're even in a unique situation in the pandemic. A lot of us were just figuring out how to navigate our businesses, but did you lean on mentors or how did you navigate that? Yeah. So, I mean, probably it was three things. It was, you know, leaning on investors, leaning on mentors and hiring, right? Mm. So we had the resources all around us. We had recently raised our series B financing from a private equity firm that had a lot of experience kind of bringing D2C brands into retail and working with the partners that we'd want to be working with. We actively sought out advisors, both who had built and scaled omni-channel companies, who had focused in, on the retailers that we cared about. You know, we were always looking for mentors and investors and team members too, who, who had done it before. Yeah. And I think that is really key in a lot of what I, we're even thinking about as a business, and we're super early, I think leaning into mentors and advisors, you know, if you haven't fundraised is so key. So it's just helpful to see even at your scale, how much of importance that is for you. And, you know, switching topics a little bit, I, I know you and Jordana had a very interesting maternity leave partnership, the way you guys kind of coordinated that when you were building a very high growth business. So I'd love to hear more about that because I think there's a stigma around you're unable to really manage a business and have a family at the same time that I think is completely false. So I'd love to hear more about your perspective doing both. So Jordana and I started the business when I guess I was in my early 30s and she was in her late 20s. We both subsequently got married and knew we wanted to start families right around the time we were, you know, two, three years into the company and kind of just decided we would alternate years. So, you know, I had a baby in 2017. She had one in 2018. I had 2019. She had 2020. So now we both have two kids. The way that we've managed it is essentially that over the years, we've each overseen half of the functions at the company at any given time, but we've traded them back and forth a handful of times as it's become clear that one of us adds the most value to one function or one person has a particular passion for something or somebody has the right chemistry with a leader at the business at that time to be able to build together. And so we've traded things on and off, which has actually made it easy for one person to step out of the company for three months, which is our standard leave to allow for that time off. And so we've each now managed the business for two leaves, you know, it's in, an, in its entirety to cover for the other. And I think that's actually made us much stronger as leaders and in partnership because we understand every element of the business and we can kind of seamlessly step in and out. So it's been, it's been great. I mean, it's a lot of work, a lot of communication, but we've done it in such a way that's transparent to the team that everyone can operate that way. 
Yeah. I mean, I think to your point, it's great in terms of just being a business leader, understanding how every function works. And when you're taking over her duties, I'm sure there's a different way that you could potentially even approach it and vice versa. So I love the way you guys have planned that. And I know in an interview, you said, you know, even becoming a mother, you've changed as a leader in a positive way in terms of really leaning onto your teammates and delegating. I'd love to hear what motherhood has taught you besides amazing time management, I'm sure. And just you being a leader and showing up in Lola. Time management is definitely a really big piece of it, I think. I mean, there's a finite... I used to not have limited time for building the business. So the first few years, Rodana and I worked... We, I mean, we worked so long on every day, like very long hours, workaholics. I wouldn't recommend necessarily the lifestyle, but we were trying to get a business off the ground. And it was really exciting. And we cared the most about this. So we did this all the time. Then, you know, we decided we wanted to have families and we want to spend time with our families. We're not just trying to have families to have them. And so it suddenly became that we're at the office from 9 or 9.30 until 5.30 and that's it. And then in the morning, I'm getting my kids ready for camp and, you know, in school. And in the early evening, I'm bathing them and getting them ready for bed. And, you know, and then I sign back online late at night, but essentially I have a finite period. And so it really is about setting those expectations, Mm -hmm. acknowledging what I need to do and what I don't need to do during those hours and handing off what I don't need to do or killing those things. You know, what's really important and make sure that I'm very rigorously prioritizing them and communicating clearly what can and what can get done and what can't. So that's a really big piece of it. I think also this might sound a little bit ridiculous, but I have very little kids. And so I have to communicate very clearly and simply all the time. And I think that actually is a positive for a business leader. Yes. (laughs) Right. As I have to just be able to very clearly and quickly articulate you know, expectations. And I have found that that's a positive for me too. I love that. No, that's true. Because sometimes, especially, you know, as the CEO, you have so many aspects in your brain, you know exactly what's going on and you just need to be very simple with the way you communicate. That's interesting. I've never heard that before. I love that. (laughs) We asked this question to a lot of our guests, but what are you most proud of that you think a lot of people might not know about you? In general, related to Lola or yeah. what? Any, it could be anything personal or professional. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, I guess, is I'm more of an introvert than an extrovert. And I remember when we were getting the company off the ground, my husband had a lot more experience with startups and working with founders. He's actually an investor. And he said... I know you think fundraising is hard, but actually for you, the hardest thing is going to be that you have to develop an extroverted side to engage investors, to lead a team. You're going to be talking more than you're working. Are you ready for that? And I remember kind of my brain exploded and I didn't know if I could do that. And it it had never occurred to me that that was what it meant to build and lead a startup because the first year or so... You're just working. Yeah. I did every single job. I knew how to do every single thing at the company. But over time, I find myself talking more than I'm doing. And, you know, I really have had to develop a more extroverted side, more comfort with working through problems out loud in the moment. Mm. And I feel like that's probably where I've developed most, you know, as a leader and professionally over the last seven years. So I'm proud. Wow. 
that's something big to be proud of because I think a lot of more introverted people think that they can never become more extroverted, right? I'm sure like you were saying, your husband was telling you and you're thinking, oh my God, that's my worst nightmare. But would you say as you're speaking more leading teams, it gets a little bit easier? I mean, how's your comfort level now? I'm totally comfortable. And I remember actually in business school, you could sign up for classes outside of the business school, like anywhere, any of the other grad schools. And so I signed up for a couple of public speaking classes because I knew that eventually I would need to just be able to have comfort in any situation, big groups, small, like leading leading meetings, leading sessions. And it just wasn't where I was comfortable. I remember just like forcing myself through those classes. They were so high impact for me. I was, my palms were sweating every week. I would go in and have to give a speech. I couldn't stand it. And my husband knew this because he was actually a TA and in one of the classes. And so he had to videotape my speeches and I was like sweating profusely through them. But I knew that this would be a challenge for me. And I have been proactively working on it over the years. Yeah, but it just shows you can you can get better. It's interesting. For some reason, I don't have a problem speaking, but when there's someone that knows me well, I get a little bit more nervous, but I still do it. I force myself. I'm like, I need to get over it. I think just jumping into that fear you have is so important, especially in entrepreneurship, because I'm sure you do that all day in different aspects of your life. And a question we also like to ask all of our guests on closing is, wealth means so much more than money, and everybody has their own definition of wealth. At this stage in your life, what does wealth mean to you? What a great question. I guess to me, wealth means having everything I need and want, which I do and being happy with what I have. I appreciate that, Alec. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited. We'll share everything about Lola in the show notes so our amazing listeners can try the experience if they haven't already. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.